With me now, I have the poet Chris Seitman. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Um, you are, at the moment, a professor at uh, Suffolk University? Yes, and uh, Bridgewater State University okay. as well. Okay, and what is it that you teach there? Um, I teach first-year writing and I, uh, a whole hodgepodge of other courses. I teach, uh, there's a, a creative writing course, a poetry survey course, uh, apocalyptic literature course, um, monsters and madmen course, uh, a whole range. Now, how did you first begin writing poetry? Um, I started writing poetry at seven years old. Um, when my, my family relocated to California briefly uh, when I was that age and uh, I wrote some notes back to my grandmother in Boston and in one of those notes I sat down and wrote a poem and from that point forward I have been keeping notebooks and writing verse and it's just been a consistent part of my life. Uh, you had an I'll use the word interesting, but I'm not sure that's the correct adjective. Uh, an interesting childhood, a different childhood from probably what most young men would have had back then, young boys would have had then. And I think that in, informs much of your poetry that you're writing now, uh, at least much of what I read uh, in preparing for this interview. Could you give the audience a, a little summary of your background as a child and how you feel that has impacted or influenced your, your, your writing? Sure. Um, so my parents, uh, neither of my parents were uh, graduates of high school. My mother uh, dropped out in the ninth grade to help raise her siblings. She was raised in uh, the D Street projects in, in Southie. And my father uh, had gotten wrapped up in the goings-on in Winter Hill um, in the 50s and had committed a murder and got 15 years to life. Um, got out when he was 30, met my mother shortly thereafter. Um, they had my brother and I. And we were on the run, I would say, or at least on the move uh, consistently throughout my early childhood. Uh, maybe about every four to six months, it seemed, we were finding a new address. And that was not exactly conspicuous to me. I didn't know any different. It just seemed normal. I thought that was how everybody lived. And then um, when I turned seven or so, we were car bombed. That stuck out. Uh, yes, <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it was not so much the moving about or even, say, the um, violence that informed my parents' backgrounds. It was how it worked its way into my own life. They were trying to do the best with the means that they had, but the means were limited, and it shaped a lot. <laughs> now, some of that background seeped into uh, one of the poems that I did read, The Father of All Lies. Yes. And it, interestingly, in your work, you divide your stanzas uh, at least designate your standards by a number. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them are Arabic numbers, one, two, three, and so on, uh, through seven. Usually there are seven mm -hmm. designated stanzas in your work. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like you to just tell the audience, uh, I know we spoke before this interview, 
Uh, and I'd like you to tell the audience what the background is for that. That's, a, that's done purpose, purposefully by you. Uh, yeah, very purposefully. It's, it's a reference to, oh, it's a, a number of references. It's one there, um, it's a reference to the formal crown of sonnets, which is seven sonnets in a row linked in a circular fashion. And then on the other end, it's a reference to uh, Ajax's uh, ox hide shield that was a seven layered shield. And the poems largely conflate this, you know, classical and Christian world. And the numbering is really about that. So there's seven as a gesture towards, you know, say Christianity, things of that nature. I'm using it that way, uh, reference towards the Dante-esque vision of the afterworld. And then also in, um, through the Arabic, I mean, through the Roman numerals, pardon me, and then through the Arabic, trying to reach back into the Greek world now, will as you a be, gesture. Will you <laughs> be reading some of those poems this evening? Or? You know, I actually brought along some newer work that I was hoping to read Speak, Yeah, and speaking of newer work, I, I do want to mention the fact that you have a chapbook coming out from Penn and Anvil Press. Yep, Penn correct? and Anvil Paper Tooth. And it's called Part X of Me. Yes. And is there a theme in the poems that are in that book? Uh, yeah, that book um, came about really, at least in its, uh, you know, <laughs> its primordial form. Uh, while I was at law school, it's, it's really an argument with the concept of logic and how logic really is only as good as the premises on which it's based, you know. And so the X in that is, a, is the, the X of mathematics in the sense that it's a variable right. that can be filled by right. any personality. Now, um, will you be reading any of the poems that are in, going to be in Part X of May? Uh, I did. I brought a, a couple of those. Good. I think that the audience uh, should pay attention to that because if they hear one or more of those poems and really would like to have them, then they should look forward to Part X of Me when it comes out from the press. Um, you have another work also that's different in the sense that it's a book of essays. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently working on a book of essays. And it, it has a certain theme? Uh, yeah, it's a it, uh, creative nonfiction memoir based and it's l looking back on um, periods of my life uh, through animal totems actually and then uh, examining them through the lens of memory itself. Like, so there's these, these non-fiction memoir occurrences that happen in conjunction with animals, and then uh, examining my perception of them from where I stand now. Now, the, one of the things that stands out in what, is what you just mentioned. Uh, you are a professor of creative writing and other English-related courses at two different universities, and yet you mentioned you are also a, a, an attorney. Well, I never took the bar. Ah, <laughs> I, never, I did not. You could, uh, but you have your JD, but your I Juris do have, Doctorate. I do have my Juris Doctorate. Yeah. And you got that from Suffolk Law School? Yes, I did. I went, I went there from 2010 to 2013. And just explain a little bit to the audience why you felt it would be helpful to you and your writing to have a, an, an education in the law? Well, I, so my, my early studies uh, in undergrad were based in history and literature as a combined topic and using one to interrogate the other. 
and then when I went and got my MFA and I was studying poetry and I realized that I was going to become a professor and that that was something that was actually going to happen. Uh, it became a habit of mine to, of course, examine the texts from those perspectives, but the law would come in uh, inevitably. And so after doing that for a little while, I realized that I really ought to be formally trained in it if I'm going to discuss it in that setting professionally. Okay. Does the law work itself into any of your poems? Oh, all over the place. I, I found the, the law itself as a, uh, a point of consideration uh, cropping up all throughout the poems. Uh, the very opening poem uh, to the, the broader collection that Part X of Me is drawn from um, is, uh, it, it opens with the image of a poet at a steel desk with a, with a stamp in his hand, right? That, and it's, I believe the line is... The, Wallace and, Stevens. Yeah, the poets have turned <laughs> to law. Exactly. Poets have turned to law. Well, I'd like to think that maybe the attorney <laughs> should turn to poetry. Thank you so much for coming this evening. Oh, uh, my pleasure. We look forward to hearing your reading. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Young I2 Kennedy. Summer sun cooks naga hide, backseat molten putty, sticking sweat bare thighs, and ocean air through unrolled windows. We coast and crawl back roads in Chatham. Our grandmother at the wheel, hair under scarf, eyes behind dark cat glasses. She smoked Pall Malls, told us, as mother, silent, stared out the passenger window. We're their cousins. Just like with Mayor White and that shitheel who married Anne Margaret. Told us they'd risen, how they'd been unwashed. As the rest, she knew, knew how they rose with tides. Boats slipping off to Canada, slipping back. Hull's whiskey full. How proud. She could feel the crackle when Jack first got elected. How handsome he looked. And Jackie. It all seemed a dream when he became president. An Irish Catholic. But she knew it doomed. She told us, too good to last. That family cursed for what they did to Rose and Teddy and that girl, and the rest, just like Moynihan said, about how being born Irish is a crash course in broken hearts. What I didn't know then filled almost every book, and now even knowing itself's suspect. I didn't know how any mythology will do as shelter in unrelenting storms, how whatever's close at hands, good as best when we don't have best, so best won't do. I didn't know how as a girl during the thirties, her father put her on the corner, how he beat her, and her early adolescence was one whiskey smelling man after another, a sweat stained mattress in a back room piss bucket tenement. How grandfather married her off the street. A drunk, 
he fucked around, fathered seven children, and disappeared down a bottle. I didn't know what it meant. So many children in her 20s and 30s, poor in the projects in Southie. How hard she was, had to be. All and more, I never knew about such pathos rolled up into a furious five-foot-four force of will. Now I remember high cement walls, a wrought iron gate to a garden, how green branches hung over the top, over the road as we drove by, sensing the ocean on the other side, and turning to see the wide lawn stretching back under gulls, screeching a white and yellow house, a grand drive, flags, salt breezes, and beyond. In that white and blue distance, I imagined myself, the young boy, standing attention as the coffin and procession rolled by. And years later, when that same boy died in a crash at sea, I was there in Hyannis, going once again to sort differences with my father. Heard the news on the bus, arrived to a town swarming, and I felt, despite knowing its storytelling, one woman's trying to give grandchildren anything to hold on, pride enough to survive, something other than we were sons and daughters of drunks and murderers, of rapists and the raped. As I watched the procession pass, for a brief moment I lost some member of my family. Um, next, I'd like to read one uh, that came out a few years ago about a salamander. That's um, in it together. <clears throat> one. Your meat's in the grinder. My hand's on the crank. The dog's at the door. There's sausage on the table. Sulfur hovers, gas puddles, ceiling. I'm staring at the birdcage, an open door, a swinging perch. You're smiling to yourself, squeezing the canary in your fist. One shrill chirp and little bones crack. Mail stuffs the slot, sour milk sits the stoop. My foot's in the door, your hand's on the knob, you're slamming it. Two. There's a fire in the bathroom, a flood in the attic, a couch in the closet, and the basement's been blown away. I'm a farmer's daughter. You're a farmhand in a hayloft. Ragged clouds recede. Halos ring the moon. Now we're a murder, perched on scarecrow arms, watching each other so close, so far away. You're feeding ammunition into a machine gun. I'm the gunner waiting, leaning into the butt. Bees sting sandbags, snap, twang, buzz our ears. Three. Your stuff's on the lawn. I'm throwing books out the upstairs window. You're crying on the phone to your lover. Maybe it's your mother. We're stuck in a ring. The ref's knocked out. No one's in either corner, 
no cheering, no jeering, no audience, no bell. We're in firefighter gear. From boughs, we hear kittens mule. Handing them down, the more there are. A deluge and flood of kittens crying out. But you keep asking, who'll save us? And I keep asking, who'll save us? We're coding R-E-S-C-U-E through cement walls and neither knows how long we can handle this solitary confinement. Four, dead mice in the pantry, ants in the balsamic, moths divide grains and spices amongst themselves, lay eggs, weave cocoons, enough for each. Out the back window, you're watching a tree, once weed, grow until it splits pudding stone, roots through church walls, and swallows the town square. I'm piling pruners, loppers, and chainsaw into a canvas bag. I'm pumping the sprayer full of jellied gas, planning an escape route. This one's from um, the um, larger collection that part of my ex of me is drawn from. It's called the, the Best of It. Up out of mud, muck, shit, and blood, even darkness so terribly bright. In the piss corner, by the hearth, X whispers X's litany. Complaints bitter to bring until a stone on X's chest crushing even next breath hopes. Still, it rises in X. A wave, synaptic chemical electrical fire shoots the next cleft. Ice crystals reach into X's souls. Rise up metatarsus, fibulas, tibias, femurs, pelvis, and spine, ribs, scapulas, clavicles, humeri, radiuses, ulnas, into X's skull, cheekbones, jaw, canines, molars, orbitals, a bone fire. X pushes X stone aside, breathes deep, feels what felt Millennia flowing away. X's hair and X's face. X stirring in dust and tears, crying out to be saved. Then not. How no one ever came. Somehow, X lets it all go. X stands, walks out the door in sunshine, takes Y by the hand along the brook to listen to water and sweet grass. Rustling breezes, finches in velvet green boughs. X unchains the song of remembering and forgetting. Climbs the scales where not eighth notes nor quarter rests are left unaccounted.
This one uh, was published a couple of years back in uh, Poetry Ireland Review. Um, math book photograph. A girl stands shoeless beside an Amazon bank in a Coca-Cola tea, holds a mug in hand, stares into the lens, earth for eyes, Grasses leap into palms beyond the road edge and trucks, carts, animals, people snake along. Mud, brick, and corrugated shacks cluster at her back. Now we're flying because in poems we can fly. Look down, see faces upon faces, crowds surging, warehouses, container ships, ports, all those lives, like great riptides flowing away from the delta and source. Now we zoom in, see a girl playing an emerald yard somewhere north. A long ribbon flows from her hand. She runs and laughs at someone left off camera. Deep inside, we feel something electric binds these two. Now we turn eyes skyward as it purples to chalk dust and stars. Beyond the moon, we see a cloud in unending void. That place we call ours, this one poem of being and becoming. And we sense our mothers calling us to come back home. How odd we should be able to withstand the ache of love, for each breathing alone under stars, awaiting salvation, beyond reason, something only illogic could bring to bear. How odd at the end of this we still find ourselves on earth. All right, I'll do. Two short ones here for you. This one's a little more playful. I was taking uh, aphorisms and, and cutting them into pieces and then stitching them um, back together. It was uh, published this past summer in the American Journal of Poetry. It's aphorisms. Early to bed, early to rise, fool me twice, shame on me. Better be silent and thought fool until seeing white eyes. Like idle hands worth two birded bushes. Waste not or be killed. Walking two headeds better than wolves in sheep, chattering birds, walls having ears. Life's real kicked in teeth when waking children tell all lies, when sleeping children stitch time unheard. So take boys out of cities, but fool's money's still the right tool for putting every egg in one basket. Besides, those who live by swords always keep wind at their backs, rats to cheese or dogs without masters. Those fools and drunks or right hands don't know left hands laughing all the way to the bank. For what goes around's a rolling stone, a handed bird, pennies saved, like fish, neither lenders nor borrowers, but gift horses, biting hands, taking candy from babies. And if I could close with this one, 
Uh, this was recently published in um, Poached Hair this December. It's called Aquanet. We swung swings, pendulum chain, wine, sang atop a loud, kicked, toes shooed beyond tight closed hands at sky, sugared blue as blue, blue could be. How many swings swung kicking at eggshell glass atmospheres? Was nothing new. Was always a game. Down in dirt, breathing mushrooms, breath, counted worms, spiders, gasped as grasped the world between dirt fingers, then threw wasps into yellow black field spider webs to see who'd best who, who died, who stayed, sprayed anthills with aquanet, set them aflame, even then, reaching into tomorrow for the new, but just the same. It was nothing new, it was all just a game. And still, the world before us unfurled, a hush, sweet grass lay, where deer spent chill night, already far off in woods, breathing, sweating, savage, beautiful, moss, antler, stags, does, fawns, same as songs we sang down the cut in woods, was all just the same, a nothing sort of game. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to For the Love of Words, the singer-songwriter session for March 2019. Uh, tonight's singer-songwriter is Michael Shea, who's also a poet and writer, uh, and we'll be discussing those aspects of his artistry as well during the interview. Good evening, Michael. Good evening. Nice to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, could you give the audience some idea of the artists who influenced you in your singing and songwriting? Probably at the very beginning, I would have to say Tom Rush. Um, not only his guitar work, but his vocal ability. There was something in his phrasing, the nuances of his tone, that captivated me, engaged me, and, and seemed to say to me, this is the way you do it, young fellow. Um, as far as songwriting, Dylan, certainly, Eric Anderson, with his finger-picking styles and his, his lyrics. Uh, a young lady that I met when I was 20, I was very fortunate to meet her. She had a crystal clear, very much like Joan Baez, soprano, Marianne Florio. And she taught me 10 or 20 songs from uh, Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins, Leonard Cohen, Peter, Paul, and Mary. And that was probably one of the most enriching moments. Because um, every one of those songs seemed to be like, not only the way things were written, but the way she sang it, a lesson. And I, I was a good student. <laughs> um, James Taylor came along, and certainly his influence was pretty profound. Uh, Loudon Wainwright and later on Jackson Brown, Bob Seeger, uh, Jesse Winchester, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, Don McLean, Bonnie Raitt. 
That's quite a catalog. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, I see more and more, particularly in the last five years, in putting a song together, I'll be singing it, or I'll think of a different way of phrasing. I'll say, gee, Jesse Winship, that way that reminds me of something, or Jackson Brown might have had that kind of chord progression. And um, So they're there. They're very much there. I should, I feel that if I ever do, you know, cut a CD or something under each song, I should say ode to John <laughs> Prine, ode to Laura Nero, kind of thing. How old were you when you started to play guitar? I was in seventh grade, and I, my parents uh, signed me up to take guitar lessons from a fellow named Mr. Career, who worked at the, at the camp, Paul Dever, where we lived. And he was wonderful. I mean, he taught me how to read Ramblin' Rose, which was a current hit at the time, how to read uh, music single notes. And we were just getting into chords. I remember struggling with the F chord. And when my godfather uh, gave me an old clarinet, metal clarinet, and my parents felt, well, if you're headed to high school, you're not going to be playing the guitar in the band. So let's see if Mr. Creer can teach you how to play the clarinet, and so we switched to the clarinet, and I endured two years of the band, or rather they endured, they two endured years me. Uh, I was probably the worst clarinetist to ever come out of the city of time, but I enjoyed being in the band. I enjoyed uh, a number of my bandmates, and, and the music was wonderful. So when did you start writing your own songs? Uh, when I was 20, and I, I was in school in Rome at Loyola University, and uh, my cousin Mike Hashem, who's won all kinds of awards, national awards, Canada, United States for tenor banjo, gave me a five-string banjo and uh, the summer before I went, and I learned, you know, as many chords as I could, and a little strum and a little pick, and found myself playing a lot of Bob Dylan's old songs, and so that kind of got me going, and then I met that young lady who taught me a good deal more, and I think I wrote my first song over there, which we will not be doing tonight. <laughs> Do you remember the title of the song, even though you won't yes, be singing Help it? Me Forget Her. It was full of all of the <laughs> angst a 19-year-old could muster. Um, and then went on and wrote another, and... Um, it really wasn't until I moved to Minneapolis after I graduated from college and the Minneapolis folk scene was was pretty thick. And I became exposed to a number of very wonderful talents and held on to the bottom rung of the ladder as long as I could. And But found that I was writing songs and I was getting little gigs here and there, New Riverside Cafe and yeah. the whole coffee house and places like that and I you know I, I, I got into it I got into it now you but you also write poetry is that correct yes I mean, yes, yes. Uh, I mean I've seen you at open mics poetry. yes and, and that what I read that drivel is my own <laughs> um, I uh, I have for ever since college and even before that I mean I think 
my first attempt in the spirit of full disclosure was eighth grade, and there was, weren't all the girls in eighth grade pretty? I mean, they were in my school anyway, and I, I plagiarized. I didn't know what the word meant, of course, at the time, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee, and changed the name to, to her name and sent it through the mail um, and uh, received it back, a letter back uh, a week later saying, Michael, don't send me any more of these poems. But I began then to put words together in, in, in some ways with the readings and, you know, that you do and everything. Um, through high school, there really wasn't much at all in college. I had a wonderful teacher freshman year, and she kind of motivated us to get some words out. We did a lot of writing, but uh, along the poetic ways. And, uh, uh, but it really wasn't until I started teaching that I started to be able to put some things down that I thought were respectable. And where were you a teacher? I taught uh, at Sacred Heart School in Kingston, and then I taught at Fair Academy in Braintree. And over the course of those years, being exposed to the poetry and teaching it and everything else, I find my, myself, you know, some ideas would come and I'd sit down at a free period or something, put a couple lines down and build on that over the next few weeks and get something that was readable, maybe not speakable, but readable, you know, and, and work on it and everything. A minute ago you used the phrase, weren't all the girls pretty? I, if you're not <laughs> going to use that as a title of a poem, I'm, I'm putting you on notice, I'm going to confiscate that for, my, for myself. You also, if I recall, in an earlier conversation that you and I had a year or so ago, you were working on a number of essays uh, about the city of Taunton. Well, short stories. Yeah. Short stories. I finished, yeah. I finished the third draft, and what, what I looked at at the time was the final draft, but since I put it away four years ago um, and got on to some other things that I needed to do, some other ideas have come to me. Oh, I should have included that, or I'm not really happy with that ending, few things. So I've got to revisit that and go over them again, 15 stories about uh, the fictitious characters growing up in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s in time, yeah. It's called Tontonians. <laughs> well, we'll certainly look forward to the day that sees publication. Well, I, I hope it does, yeah. I hope it does. And, but we're gonna look forward to hearing you perform this evening. Thank you so much Thank for you. being here. Thank you very Pleasure much. to have you. Thank you. This first song I wrote about four years ago. And if I were a romantic poet in the Shelley Keats Wordsworth strain, this would be my ode to spring. Music starts the moment she arrives. Flashes you that effervescent smile. The gardens start to bloom. 
There's grace in every room. You're captivated by her sprightly style. But this coquette can stay for just a while. She has no more resilience than the rose. No, she isn't strong. She cannot love you long. It's ever gray November when she She leaves behind a wine and russet wood Like the aftermath of a music that is gone You feel right to resent her But you'd be wrong For it's not within her character to stay Echoing her song When November comes She's half a world away She fills you with her evanescent warmth. Makes you feel you're finally alive. Her laughing apple breath can banish even death. And all your dreams that vanished, they revive. When you feel the frosted touch of fall, need the spark the vernal wood bestows, you will look around, but she will not be found, for it's ever.
gray November. Not goldenrod December. It's ever gray November when she goes. This next song comes from reading maybe too much of the metaphysical poet John Donne's poetry three winters ago and we received one storm after the next and one must pass the time somehow so why not read John Donne? John Donne was a poet who just didn't believe in metaphor. He believed in these far-out comparisons called conceits. And this song came about from that and a few other things. It's called Take No Prisoners. Some yellow from her palette. Sketches out the confines of my face. Then she takes her knife and she loads its silver blade. Flashes flesh and bone right into space. When she's done, she shows to me my image. And accepts my all with the clear eyes of a saint. Each slash or stroke, she says, is a matter of life or death. I can take no prisoners when I paint. I can take no prisoners when I paint. sits for hours at his piano mining out the words of music for a song his fingers torture over every silver phrase then he finally strikes some chords 
around so long. When he asks me how it sounds, I tell him edgy. And his laugh tells me I'm much more right than wrong. Each word or note he says is a matter of life or death. I can take no prisoners with my songs. I shall take no prisoners with my songs. Well, they say all is fair love and war and I know good love is worth the fighting for but as a lover or a fighter I always seem to trust that my all too human heart won't be just face to face to see if our love lives or if it dies we'll muster our defenses and we'll aim with all our pride and the sorrow in my voice and in your eyes When you tell me that you need me, I answer how. I guess I need to learn what you're needful of. Oh, life can be ironic, but we don't have to be. If I live this life for you, Live this life for me, then we'll take no prisoners with our love. We shall take no prisoners with our love. We'll take no prisoners. last song wrote about 15 years ago and it's meant to be a tribute to the love my mother and father had but I think it can go out and be kudos to all married couples who endured it's called these 30 years silver and her eyes are blue 
words are kind and her love is true. I've been her laughter and I've been her tears and she's been my wife these 30 years. Her eyes are soft and her hair is sweet. Her voice is gentle and her touch is deep. Raising our children was her career and she's been my love these 30 years well if a husband could relive life with all his learning and a brand new wife one who's pretty one who's I know again that I just choose her. Her eyes are clear and her patience long. Her ears are deep and her faith is strong. She's taught me how to see and hear. And she's been my teacher these 30 years. Well, if one day sorrow comes and we learn too soon, life is done. I'll have our children, I'll have our home, and I'll have a memory as I live alone. She has a mind, wisdom lives. She has a heart that will forgive. She knows my goodness and she knows my fears. Cause she's been my friend these 30 years. Yes, yeah, she knows my goodness. She knows my fears. Cause she's been my lover, teacher, wife these 30 years.